one that was a favorite of mine. It was Popcast from Pop Up Archive. <laughs> It's a Saturday night in Harlem, New York. The year is 1928, maybe 1930. Crowds flock to the Cotton Club on Lenox Avenue and 142nd Street, renowned for its spectacular shows and plentiful bootleg liquor. The Harlem Renaissance is in full swing. The African American community leads the city in cultural output, with new writings, music, and philosophy produced at breathtaking rates. The Cotton Club gave stage to many of the era's most well-regarded black stars. Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, and Billie Holiday were just a handful of the performers from their illustrious bills. But back in the 1920s and 30s, this showcase for black talent came with a catch. It was a trap. A joint, as you call it. A joint. <laughs> Or a toilet. A toilet, yes. Plush line. That's uh, the vernacular. I think that's a show business expression. That's a that's a show business expression. That's Lena Horne talking to Jean D'Alessi in a 1966 interview for KPFA in Berkeley, California. Lena Horne was a singer, dancer, and actor with a career spanning over 70 years. Notably, she was the first black performer signed by MGM, acting in many of their major films like Panama Hattie and Cabin in the Sky. Most know Horn for her high-budget musical reviews, barrier-breaking film roles, and civil rights activism. But at 16, she was just one more anonymous chorus girl, working at the bottom rung of show business. It was a dreadful place. That was bad working conditions, little money, no respect paid to its creative people, and our own people couldn't come and see us perform. One didn't say too much about it because one then would get all the men fired who were waiters there, <laughs> and one would get all the chorus girls fired who took care of their families by working there. Though the club provided a Broadway-quality stage for black artists, it was solely for the entertainment of white audiences, who expected jungle tunes and parades of wild, titillating dancers. Langston Hughes called this trend the period when the Negro was in vogue. Throughout the 20s, gangster-turned-bootlegger Owen Madden began acquiring uptown nightclubs and speakeasies as places to sell his Prohibition-era booze. The Cotton Club, with its tall, tan, and terrific dancers, high production values, and whites-only policy, was his most glittering acquisition. I'm torn because that was the place that was the showcase for Negro talent. And one had to have <laughs> some place to show one's creativity. Negro people finally worked under a roof in a cabaret that was a little better than a basement downstairs somewhere, and not a tent show in the South. My mother was an actress. A truly dedicated, creative person who had no place to act. <laughs> How dare she? You know, there were three theaters, uh, one in Philadelphia, one in Washington, one in New York, where a Negro actress could act. Otherwise, she, you know, kicked around the South along with every other traveling gypsy, blues singers otherwise, with no place to work. 
So Horn continued performing at joints like the Cotton Club, doing her best to preserve some semblance of pride. The woman placed in my position started with a, as a half-naked Corrine, stared at, going into more sleek and more glamorous supper clubs. You know, mmm, oh boy, look at that. But you tried to keep this thing for yourself, and that's why I built this kind of facade in front of me, this hard shell, this thing, so that they couldn't get to the last thing I had left, my inner. I don't know why now purity embarrasses one to say purity. Uh, but do you know what I mean? I had to keep my inner purity. I had always had this pride, this fierce, sterile almost kind of pride because my grandmother had said, you must be proud, but she never told me all the horror of her background. One didn't talk about it, you see. And I was getting more and more in that middle-class trap with Negroes who might have a job who didn't speak about it. Yet soon enough, Horn's fierce talent and dazzling stage presence got her in rooms with increasingly esteemed black artists, like jazz composer and playwright Noble Sissel and singer and activist Paul Robeson. Artists who could afford to grapple with the bigotry of their white patrons. They could no longer stand for roles as minstrel clowns and tribal savages. They had to use their popularity among white audiences to show depth and sophistication. Horn first met this attitude after leaving the Cotton Club to tour with Noble Sissel and his society orchestra for white, black, and mixed crowds across the country. And Noble became the paternalistic uh, Negro leader man in my life when I was uh, 17 and a half, 18 years old. And he uh, said to me, you must be a lady. Now, lady... I don't mean a lady who does no work and is an aristocrat because she has money and is waited on by people. I mean a lady so that you aren't any of the other stereotype Negro characters. One must be neater and cleaner and more genteel in attitude so that one will be accepted for the sake of helping other <laughs> Negro people. Yet replacing the definition of African-American art and who it was for often meant excluding those performers who had created their entire careers around the stereotype. You were unique because you broke barriers for other performers. You were representational of what the sophisticated NAA kind of Negro community wanted to purvey. I was used, you know, uh, by uh, many organizations uh, first of all, to get employment for other people, but I was also used uh, most uncomfortably for me to seem to appear to be a threat to the Negro people who had to accept any kind of caricature just to work. All fine entertainers, but uh, who were being what uh, was said to be being Negro. Stephen Fetchett was one such performer. He was the first black actor to become a millionaire, the first black actor to get screen credit, but his whole persona was built around a lazy, bumbling caricature. 
Here's a clip from his 1948 film, Miracle in Harlem. What are you nervous about? I ain't exactly nervous. I just generally falls to pieces around polices. It's so funny. I often wonder what a director is going to say nowadays to someone on stage. Act like a Negro. What, what is that going to keep meaning, you know? Um, because I find, even in my own family, hardly any of us act the same way. This episode was produced by me, Emma Hammond. The archival audio in this episode was digitally preserved as part of the Pacifica collection, American Women Making History and Culture, 1963 through 1982. Learn more at pacificaradioarchives.org. Find this podcast, along with thousands of archival recordings, at popuparchive.com explore. This is Popcast. Thanks for listening.